Have you seen any of these trees before? I mean, I've seen them, but I no, haven't have... seen them with an ecologist before, oh, so I'd love oh. to hear a bit more. Yeah, this is really, oh really God. crazy. So this is an old Metairie Ridge that was an ancient Mississippi distributary. So these trees are probably on average 800 years old. Wow. That's the largest stand of ancient oaks in probably the United States. You know, that's the biggest part of it, and that this ridge is uh, probably eventually going to be, you know, not here. What do you mean it's eventually not going to be here? Well, well, the Gulf of Mexico is slowly but surely creeping in, and we're losing land all around the city, and slowly but surely... Slowly but surely, these giant 800-year-old trees will be sitting in water. Their roots will be sitting in water. And they'll start getting salty and all of the rest of it right. that hardwood doesn't right. like. Right. So, Dave, can you please explain who you are, what um, it is you do, and then give a like layman's explanation of what the hell is going on down here and uh, why? Okay. My name is David Baker. I'm a ecologist slash botanist, coastal restoration guy. I teach natural history and invasive species ecology at Tulane University. I manage probably the longest hurricane forest ecology research project in Southeast Louisiana. At the same time, I'm also a contract scientist for the Pontchartrain Conservancy, and I've been restoring all the parishes surrounding New Orleans for the last 10 years. And I've planted over 100,000 cypress trees and 50,000 longleaf pine. I'm always seeing things changing every single day in completely different ecosystems. So that gives me kind of a, an opportunity to convey to people that it's worse than most people realize. So in layman's terms, what's happening in Southeast Louisiana is the Mississippi River has been blocked off for a hundred years now. And the Mississippi River provides all the nutrients and life and land building material. Since we've walled it off, that material just goes in the Gulf of Mexico. And so it takes that material, what we have presently on site, about 6,000 years for it to solidify, for it to compact. So we're in 100 years of a compaction that's happening in geological time. I'm not a geologist, but maybe the beginning of the compaction is faster than the later portion. But since we have sea level rise and we've been hit by four hurricanes in two years, we've lost an amazing amount of coast. And so even if the compaction rate was really really slow we're now losing a lot of the land which is going to be the buffer from the hurricanes and so what we're seeing is that the land is now sinking and the hurricanes will soon be just hitting the hurricane protection wall full force which is also man-made which is also man-made the lines of defense are the barrier islands then the marsh the estuary you know forest levees so there's layers of defense and we've lost or we're losing almost no barrier islands and now all the marsh surrounding new orleans is almost completely gone so now we have like the fourth line of defense a big earthen levee 
or a giant concrete wall. But those structures are really supposed to be, you know, buffered by miles and miles of marshland. They're not made to be like a door is for a human being to enter. So if the levees and the hurricane walls become our line of defense, then we're in trouble. Yeah. When you said they started blocking off the river a hundred years ago, yeah. why were they blocking it off and where were they blocking it off? Oh, the mouth of the river at South Pass, uh, the early 1900s, a man named Eads, uh, who was this crazy man who wanted to make sure that the river pushed the sediment all the way out. And what would happen in the spring is there would be so much sediment from the snow melt that it would basically block the mouth of the river for travel. The river was levied for commerce so that that wouldn't happen because the boats would sit and anchor and wait for the water levels and the sediment to move around. So they said, well, we want to make sure this never happens again. And that's why they built the levees down there. And there are these giant jetties that go out into the Gulf of Mexico about a mile and a half. To this day, it's still impressive. They were just determined to make New Orleans, you know, what New Orleans is. And the only way that was going to happen is if they were able to control the Mississippi River. And then meanwhile, upriver by um, the Atchafalaya Basin, it wanted to go through the Atchafalaya Basin. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, no, 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 right. no, you're coming this way. Right. Before that happened, the river kind of moved a lot more. And so they did uh, build a giant river control structure. And now 30% of the river goes to the Atchafalaya and 70% of the water goes to the Mississippi River. But they're capable of determining the flows. And there's nine or 10 dams above St. Louis that control the flow too. So yeah. the river is completely manipulated. And like shackled in place. Yeah. So if they were to stop controlling the flow, let's just say at Atchafalaya Basin, yeah. Would the water all eventually, or the majority of the water all eventually go through the Atchafalaya Basin? Uh, the river will go where the river wants to go. I think the biggest thing about the river is the river has the food, the nutrients that this ecosystem needs. So upriver it's just completely manipulated for energy, agriculture, flow. There's 212 chemical plants between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. They all use the water to process cool systems. There's a nuclear power plant that also uses water to cool its system. So eventually what's left in the water, it doesn't get pushed back into the ecosystem. That's the really big thing. I mean, I, I've been telling people that I don't, I don't think there's any hope. It takes 20 years to get a river diversion, and this is probably what we really need to talk about. The only way to build marsh in Louisiana is either to dredge the Mississippi River and pump it into the marsh, and then plant or let the ecosystem regrow, or we cut giant holes in the levee systems and build these things called sediment diversions. And the diversions are either sediment or fresh water, because some places they want to make sure the salt water doesn't intrude. And so they have two types of diversions. There are 12 that have been talked about for the last 25 years. And there are only two diversions that have been built. So really important to understand, it takes 20 years for one of these structures to get from the check to go 
to where they turned it on. And so the coastal master plan puts places like I manage a studio in the woods as being marsh in 2040. Yes. So it's 2022, and if they got the green light to build the next diversion tomorrow, it won't be done until 2042, but the master plan has it as marsh. So what's essentially happening is we're moving so slow that the only thing between Barataria Bay and the Mississippi River is just a levee. So at some point in time, you're just going to remove the levee and the river will start because we're moving at such an insanely slow rate. Everything to the west of Empire, when I take a boat through there, my GPS, which I bought the software five years ago, on the screen, you're driving over land. If you're just looking at the screen, you go to turn and then you realize it's just 10,000 acres of open water now instead of marsh. So the GPS hasn't caught up? The GPS's G aren't being updated fast enough for the marsh loss. And every time there's a hurricane, the loss is so significant. It is beyond comfortable how fast a hurricane can take, let's say, a restoration project. Almost anything that we've done, any small-scale hurricane can come and just just throw it away. You know, it takes the marsh and it throws the marsh on top of a piece and then it takes that piece and it'll throw it. So these big tidal surges we get with these big hurricanes just get under the marsh and just throw the marsh around. And you'll see these giant chunks and you're like, what the hell? And then you think, oh my God, it's got marsh grass growing on it, but it's the exact same species that grow in the marsh. But you could see where they had like you know, it was grass like this. Displaced. You know, these big chunks of like native vegetation. So I see with my own eyes just how easy Mother Nature takes our precious marsh and tosses her around. And so for these storms in the last two years, three years, and so every one is violent. So the ecosystem that surrounds New Orleans is not fixed. It's not rock. These guys that we're looking at, these giant trees, are only here because this is an ancient Mississippi distributary. If not, there's no way you can get to be 850 years old, 900 years old. So this, at one point in time, was just the highest, most grandest point in New Orleans. Uh, because from here to this is natural. You know, almost no other water body around is natural. So there's a few ginormous trees on Metairie Road that are bigger than these. So when Ida came along and we were all watching it and it was, you know, taking its time to get there, yeah. there's this absolute fear yeah. because everybody knows, yeah. consciously or unconsciously, that there's not enough protection for a storm like that. Yeah, one, I'll never stay again. Um, and as a child, we never worried about hurricanes here. I actually remember for Hurricane Fred when I was 11, my mom let me go ride my bike around the neighborhood with my friends. It's a hurricane. And now when they're four days away, I'm like, man, I got to go to Michigan. And as a homeowner, which now I almost regret buying a house here, the insanity behind trying to protect the structure is just ridiculous. My wife and I rode out Zeta and Ida at our house on Lake Pontchartrain with wind just being blown into all the windows because the silicone gaskets had failed under the door. So it wasn't flooding outside, but just the sheer 
130 mile an hour forced rain. I mean, I saw oak limb as big as me just blow right down the street. As I was looking out the front door, I was like, oh shit, I hope it doesn't get any bigger. These storms don't hit land anymore like it looks on the map. Yeah. And people in the city, now in the post-Katrina environment, there are so many people that are not from New Orleans that have no recollection of what hurricanes used to be and what they are now and don't really understand how vulnerable we really have become. Do you feel like there's a, just a huge amount of people who live around here now who don't have a real connection to the land, don't yeah, have a real yeah. sense of it? Yeah. And that's all part of the issue as well. Right, yeah, the, the part of the issue is Wow, it's a New Orleanian, this is crazy. But in the World's Fair, 1984 was the World's Fair. That's kind of when New Orleans decided, hey, we're gonna sell ourselves to tourism. That was clearly when we said, hey, we wanna earn our wealth from inviting people here. And so from then until Katrina, we just, that's how we sold ourselves and people came and came and then Katrina hit and then people came to help and those people never left because New Orleans is so cool. I can't blame them for that. And when they were just back to when New Orleans decided to start selling itself yeah. for its culture, yeah. what was it selling? Oh, the Fridge Quarter, the jazz, the Mardi Gras, the food, the food, Commander's Palace the Mardi Gras. And so much of this rooted in people that had been here for a really long time and were really connected to land. Right, right. And, and then if you really get into it, it all goes into this old Southern money, racism, all these other deeply, deeply rooted things, which, which in all honesty, as somebody who grew up here, it doesn't seem that significant. But when I look at it from an outsider's perspective, as what the South is and what you're told and you're educated about. Yeah, ancient New Orleans is just this crazy, crazy place. This extraordinary combination of man's will yeah. and commerce. So it's like the money was so important. What man wanted to do was so important, yeah. but it really needed all of the nature and the natural right, environment right. to create everything that it wanted to do. And then now Mother Nature's like, just going to take it all back. Yeah. And you can't do anything about it. She's like, you've messed me up. You've turned me around so many times. Right. I don't even know what way is up right. anymore. I've just got to keep on forcing right. forward. The land is sinking. So now we have sinking, salt in the water, hurricane impacts, levees, fungal stress because we're sinking. So it's not just one factor. There's a water equation, psi, the water equation. Uh, it's a plant physiology equation. And it explains how trees are able to take water out of the earth and move it up to their leaves and it takes pressure and atmospheric pressure and gravity and h2o and the weight and there's like 41 variables it's the plant equation like you learn that on the first day of plant physiology like you need to know this so if you take an equation with 41 variables and you start screwing with four or five of the variables and that's what we've done. If we were just altering the hydrology, that would be one thing. But we're altering the hydrology that's filled with food and protein and nutrients and life. And we haven't quite figured out that if we don't start putting that food back into the ecosystem, 
we're going faster than any place in this hemisphere. And that's what all these people hanging out at the Jazz Fest are going to Saints games. You know, they're paying $25 for a pool boy. That's what they need to understand is that we are going at a rate that's faster than any place else in this hemisphere. And so when I tell people I need to leave, when my mom passes, I am leaving. And everybody says, well, where are you going to go? It's so bad every place else. It is bad every place else, but this has like 17 different variables of badness. So that's the thing that people understand. When I got ready to leave my house this morning at 7 o'clock and I went to turn the doorknob, the doorknob was hot from the sun at 725. We are so hot right now that this means more hurricanes, which means more loss. Yeah. And in the meantime, maybe part of the issue is this is a culture that we're all surrounded by loads of complex things all the time. This is a culture especially that is very aware, whether it's conscious or not conscious, that it's on water. It's basically an island, yeah, yeah. New Orleans. And there's a culture in this area of, let's just live for today. Yeah, sure. Let's just not think about it. And all the Jazz Fest and all yep. the Saints games and all the different parties and all the pleasure zone that right. everyone thinks of New Orleans as being. Yeah. Part of that is just coping yeah, with like sure. not being able to wrap your head around it, which is obviously contributing at the same time to the problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just to blame. I mean, I drink way more than probably most people do or that aren't <laughs> from New Orleans, but most people in New Orleans are just like uh, alcoholics in denial, basically, I guess you could say. So, yeah. Do you I, think that is to do with that sense of... Yeah. We're, we're like we're wrapped up in this thing and we don't know yeah. it could go at any moment yes yeah I think it's only getting worse now I think the concept that we used to yeah we'll find some shit the concept that we used to have parties we used <laughs> to have hurricane parties and so now now we don't have parties. New Orleans is very vulnerable because of where it is. And as long as we keep losing the systems around the city, it's just going to be more and more vulnerable. Um, so broad, like sweeping overview of the situation, as I see it, yeah. is European thinking entered this land across the board and imposed rationality, efficiency, reason to what was happening and working perfectly well mm -hmm. on its own yeah and now we're living with the consequences but we're still not able fully to reconnect with the land early in our history we've we viewed the marsh as useless the marsh was just uh this giant area of you couldn't farm it you couldn't build on it you couldn't do anything until they found oil on it and so you know the colonists just cut it they just did whatever they wanted to to make commerce easier and then yeah surely when business became the real driving force then we had the wall off the river because we got it yeah we definitely have to make as much money as possible and get the cotton or whatever you know all the commodities yeah it's a total european mindset i mean i'm half native american so you can look at the european mindset there you know the savages so yeah, we, we definitely uh, treated this land in a way that 
was bad and then when we realized what it had we just we just took and we still take a good example of our mindset is there are no limits on crabbing any day of the year that's the only fishery in all of the United States where you could just take every day crabbing crabbing they don't stop there's not an end to the season Dave tell me about your Native American heritage um, I am Choctaw and my grandfather grew up at Four Corners the reservation in Clayton New Mexico he left the reservation and moved to Eugene Oregon and uh, then he started cutting sequoias my other side of the family is is Russian Jew, so it's a really weird mix. I'm not an Anglo, basically. When I was a child, my grandfather every week sent me a book, a nature book. He professed nature to me. You gotta save the planet. You gotta go to Eugene, Oregon and tell those bastards that they're clear-cut in the forest. So I got that from my grandfather, for sure. Since I was a young child, any chance I had with friends who were better off than me that owned land or I went out in the woods and, and as soon as I started college, I had the opportunity to go work in the Everglades. So yeah, the amount of time to spend in the environment is really, really significant to how you perceive the environment. And the other thing I can honestly admit as a forest ecologist is now I, it's almost like I'm too sensitive to what humans are doing like in my neighborhood there's 58 trees that have been cut since I bought my house five years ago it just crushes me oaks yeah oaks there's no rules in Louisiana you can cut whatever you want um, so I can honestly say now what I'm seeing here due to the ignorance hurts me in a way that my wife doesn't understand you know like this week they cut a tree like a block over last week they cut two giant cypresses a house over from me so like every day I drive home and I'm like well there's another freaking tree gone when it rains hard where's all that water gonna go we're gonna flood so now I've developed that anxiety because all the idiots around me don't realize that a tree this big sucks up millions of gallons of water and when we get one of these 25 inch rainstorms which we get there won't be any native vegetation to help the man-made system so whilst for a lot of people walking in nature is this wonderful soothing and relaxing thing forest bathing people come and they kind of think oh isn't it wonderful yeah you're almost the opposite it's stressing you out because you can see it on such a new oh, yeah, level yeah. you feel like you're surrounded by mindlessness i feel like i'm surrounded by people who are not conscious enough about what the real needs are to protect the people that remain in this corner of Louisiana. I am just stupefied at the rate of we're not building any land. We're just not spending enough effort building more land. And when you just see Barataria Bay is just wide open, the whole area between the mouth of the river and Hopedale and Delacroix, that big horseshoe, that's all gone. So when you look on a map, the reality is it's New Orleans and then just the river. Those two lobes have disappeared. Anyway. So many good things you're saying, Dave. Just a couple more things. I was down in Plaquemines the other day. 
I saw them building a new levee. Mm-hmm. I met people in Plaquemines who were like, you can't start flushing in fresh water, it's gonna destroy everything, or we are building land, it's no. happening. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you've got the Venice port complex who are doing a lot of rebuilding of land that they've lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's hundreds of things that people are saying that would be kind of contra to a lot yeah. of the stuff you're saying. Yeah. Well, the data speaks for itself that there's 12, 12 or 13 diversions that are slated there's a map of where they want to put them and there's only two built and it takes almost 20 years yeah there's different ways you could say it and there's different things to worry about but in reality there's only one way to get the sediment into the ecosystem you know you either got to cut holes in the levee or pump it over there or blow the levees so I had this joke with a friend of mine. She's a home Indian. She's a photographer. And she was at the studio in the woods. I'm a swimmer and a triathlete. And I said, this is what we need to do. We need to make a calendar. And I'm going to get a hot pink Speedo. And we're going to get one of those Acme plungers from Bugs Bunny. And we're going to go down the river on the levee. And I want you to take photographs of me with, like, you know, silver ray beds and my pink speedo and you know maybe machete and it's just gonna be this whole like this is what we have to do calendar and maybe the guy in the speedo with the machete will make people aware enough to go what the fuck is this about and then they'll realize like this is where we're at what they need to do is just tell the companies and the industry which is at the bottom of the river you have five years to build yourself a wall so that you don't get slammed by a hurricane, but you gotta leave. If you went to Venice, there's that facility right there. Every time I boat by to go survey uh, some research plots I have, there's like three or four inches of water in this petrochemical facility. It's always flooded. It is always flooded. The guys get out of their trucks into water. That's why they wear shrimp boots. So that's what I think is that they have to tell people the end is near. You have five years to prepare. Everything south of Bell Chase, we have to take the levees away and we have to go extreme. If we don't go extreme, the extreme is coming right at us from the Gulf of Mexico. And the extreme of taking everything away south of Bell Chase is Plaquemines Parish no yeah, longer yeah, exists. Yeah, 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 no longer exists. And it, Plaquemines Parish is, is no longer going to exist if we do nothing. So if it was up to you, it would be big, it would be quick, it would be radical and something could be salvaged. As it is, you don't have a lot of hope that that's what's going to happen. No. And therefore, what are we looking at 10 years time? Oh, wow. Well, I would say 10 years time. Soon there will be no marsh in front of that giant wall in New Orleans East. That's number one. Number two, Plaquemines Parish outside of the levee system will not exist. There will be no marsh in Plaquemines Parish. That will change the salinity and they won't be able to grow oysters anyway because it'd be too saline now because there is no marsh yeah if we don't do something fast the fisheries will collapse and then rebuild itself you know way way in the future but definitely the bottom 15 20 miles of levee you know from empire down to venice i really think we could remove that i mean it that would be a great help in 10 years time, the only people that will be living in Plaquemines Parish will be the people that are needed to support 
the fisheries and the oil industry. And now the oil industry is all based out of Fushan or Houston, so Plaquemines really only has the fisheries. And once the fisheries are completely collapsed, then Plaquemines will, will just move up to New Orleans, I guess. And what does New Orleans <coughs> look like in 10 years' time? Oh, wow. I would say New Orleans in 10 years' time will be 60% people not from New Orleans. And more people like myself are leaving. All the old timers that I talk to want to go. I've rebuilt my house twice. Uh, I've rebuilt other people's homes multiple times. So just me, myself, and the experience of this disaster recovery, disaster recovery, disaster recovery. I think New Orleans will be populated by people who really aren't from here, and then the locals will keep their homes and come for times like this and Mardi Gras. But the summertime will definitely become the doldrums. Mm. Like, you know, the tourism will be completely gone. Yeah. When it's 110, you're not going to walk around the French Quarter. Dave, thanks so much for talking <laughs> with me. This is brilliant. I wondered if we could just quickly, I don't know if yeah. it's nearby, but go up to one of your favorite trees and you could give me a quick rundown of it. Oh. Like what you see and what you look at when you're looking at one of these trees. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah let's go try to find one of these special ones. <laughs> yeah, this big girl up here and then this, this, this giant one here. The thing that's crazy is they're still here. You know, they're still here. We just... People in my neck of the woods. Yeah, I think this one over here is about almost 900. And then we can just walk back around. This is probably one of the most amazing trees around. Probably one of the oldest trees in east of the Mississippi River. Who planted them? These are all natural. <laughs> who planted them? That's, how far, that's <laughs> how far away we are. Who planted, oh. who planted them? <laughs> <laughs> Who planted this? Wow. Right. Okay, please introduce me. Um, I don't know exactly the name of this one, but all these ancient trees have names. There's the dueling oaks, there's the myrtle oak. I don't know the specific name for this uh, tree, but I have measured this tree at over 235 centimeters around. It's easily over 850 years old. A live oak this big is a hundred pounds per cubic foot of material. So we're looking at millions of pounds of cellulose above us. Super dense. Super, 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 super dense. When I cut small live oaks, I go through a chainsaw an hour. I don't even know if you could cut this tree with a chainsaw. Uh, the other thing that's really important to note is that Structurally, if you think of that we've had eight large hurricanes in the last 20 years, structurally, when you look at it, it's got a flat top. All these old oaks, their tops only get so high, probably because once you get a little bit bigger, you snap. So they've been through enough time and enough storms to have basically stopped trying to go up because the top has been ripped off over and over and over, especially if you're 900 years yeah. old, 800 years old. So that definitely gives you the shape. Cypress do that too. Old growth cypress trees are flat at the top because of that as well. And so that's how you can really age some of these trees between 300 years. And it seems to take that many years for the tree to be like, all right, I'm gonna start trying to grow up. I'm just gonna just, I'll be 
grow out. And so that's why when you look around, these trees have really grown out because they have all the space they want to go up. You know, there's nothing above them, it's all them. So they've been manicured over time by mother nature. This is so crazy structurally. Yeah, it's just, it's just spectacular.